Please take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. We're continuing in our study, and again, we need to be reminded that the Apostle Paul is writing to Christians. He's not writing to non-Christians, and so it seems like the passage that we're going to read this morning really has more application to other people. And if you've read it in preparation, and if you've read through it and you said, I don't have to really listen this week, I've got this one under control, then you really don't know your own heart. And so I want you to hear these words and apply it because again, we put our righteousness and holiness not to secure God's grace, but to live out God's grace. And so the Apostle Paul teaches us how to do that. And so I want to begin by giving you the ending of our passage last week, Ephesians 4, verses 22 through 24, and it says this, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and it's corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness." And then our passage this morning is starting at verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehoods, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. And let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hand so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such that is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may be giving grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, we know that Jesus Christ lived these words out. He is our example of what it means to live out our righteousness to your glory, to understand the love that you've given to us in Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, Father, please don't let us just walk through this passage either with deaf ears and blind eyes, but Lord, that we would see how it applies to us, that we would be quick to ask for forgiveness, to restore relationships, that we would truly grasp and understand what it means to forgive as we have been forgiven. And so, Father, come and teach us anew and fresh today, for this we speak in the power of the Holy Spirit, but we say all of these things in the name of your Son and our Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen. So we're going to look at two aspects. There's five examples that he gives to us, and he follows a pattern of putting off, putting on, and then he gives us a reason why we should do it. And so we're going to follow that, but it does split up, in my opinion, uh, into two different things. And I, I'm stealing this from Brian Chapel, so I'll put that out. So the first point is personal holiness, and these are the first three put-offs that the Apostle Paul has taken us. And then the second part of it is what is our personal witness? How do we witness to others outside? And those are the last two put-offs and put-ons that the Apostle Paul gives us. So the first one we're looking at in regards to personal holiness is grace and truth. 
So again, as we follow the pattern, the first thing we need to do is to put off falsehood. Now, again, all of this is to, uh, we all are going through this, and that's what I want you to understand. We all have a desire to put off the pressure to, to gain advantage over situations or people, and we want to avoid consequences. Everybody in this room goes through that trial and struggle. And so the Apostle Paul is telling us to take off the falsehood. Now, specifically, we can look at a couple things. And this is where sometimes people look at this and go, well, I'm not a liar. I, there are times where we straight out lie, though, right? We know it. Hey, I'm about to tell a lie. And it's purposeful. And you know what? We don't even have to be taught that. You know how I know that? Because you have children, a lot of you. And you've had to experience children, and especially if they've gone and gotten something that they weren't supposed to. Now, they're not smart enough to wipe off the crumbs. Did you go get the cookie? I didn't get the cookie. Are you sure you didn't get the cookie? I didn't get a cookie. Well, there sure are a lot of crumbs on your face. It looks like you have gotten into a cookie. I got in a cookie. We don't have to teach that. It's something that we do. It's part of, again, our sin nature. And so we have this opportunity that we do straight out lie, but there's also, we start justifying some things and say, well, it's not really a lie, it's a, it's a fib. Where are the grades? See, again, we think that there are some things that are acceptable lies. And what God's telling us here is there's nothing that's acceptable in regards to lies. And he doesn't just say, hey, don't stop lying. He also says things like, um, put away the false representations. See, we think that there's a, if there's a profitable lie, it's better than a hurtful truth. And so what happens is we begin to bring false representations, and we do this in regards to ourself. So sometimes we, we say things that are, make ourselves look better than we really are. They're called resumes, right? <laughs> but there's also times on the other side where we do things like where we even bring in sordid facts so we look worse than we are sometimes. And so we have these extremes, but we also do it with other people. We devalue them. When we begin to compare ourselves, we undermine who they are, undermine their giftedness. And so there's falsehoods that we have with ourselves and others, but there's also falsehoods that we have in regards to work. Cheating, plagiarism. It's more rampant today than ever. Why? Because the internet's free. You can go and buy papers and turn it in as your own. My issue is why haven't the professors figured that out? But there's also colleges and universities and schools and high school where teachers and administrators have been caught having their kids cheat so the schools look better than they really are. See, we have these falsehoods, but we also have falsehoods in regards to misrepresenting facts. We have courtrooms full of, I don't recall I don't remember that. And so God's telling us we are to put away lying to one another. And we're supposed to put on truth. See, truth is a debt that we owe to one another. But it's done in such a way that it says it should be done in love. 
Now, again, you understand if you've ever been, if you've been alive for a number of years, if you've gone and been around people, you know the difference between those who speak truth to hurt you and to undermine you and those who love you. And so he tells us, put on truth and speak it in love. Why? Why? Because we're all members of the body. We're all connected to one another. Brian Chappell uses an example. He says, would the eyes be looking at the hands when it goes to the hot stove and not say anything? We wouldn't do that with our own bodies, but why do we do it in the church? Why do we do it with other Christians? Why do we seek to destroy and hurt and maim others who call upon the name of Christ? And when we begin to maim and hurt one another, then that begins to affect trust. And when trust disappears with one another, then what happens is the work of the body halts. We quit. We all know people that when they come around, we cringe. Please don't talk to me. I, I, don't, I don't want to be verbally beat one more time. Why is that? Because a lot of times it's easier to misrepresent. It's easier to tell a fib. It's easier to stray from the truth than it is to do real life together. And see, not only are we called to do life together, but even this, this past week I had someone come into the office and they were telling me how they look at the congregation and they can go through and they can pray. And I could sit here and I could tell you for everybody who's a regular attender and everybody's a member, I can tell you something that's going on in their life, what I'm praying for. Every person, they said, well, that's what I do. But they're starting to get more people, so I want you to give me a list of every family that's here so I can be praying for them consistently. Do we really trust, care? And again, this is easy for people to get overwhelmed and say, well, man, you know, the church is getting bigger and do I really have to pray for everybody? Let me ask you a question. Are you praying for anybody? That's the bigger question. God's not calling you to be anybody's savior. He is. But he's calling us to be faithful. And so he sets us up with this first one of put off falsehood, put on the truth, because we're all members of one body. The second thing that he teaches to us is he tells us to bring grace in the midst of righteous anger. Now I want to be very, very careful because this is one that gets misunderstood and misapplied a lot. Okay, so they hear the words, don't let the sun go down upon your, and if you look at the Bible, it says your anger. Okay, so what we're talking about is something that's very different than just having disputes. And here's what I mean. It should kind of read in the Bible, it should read a little bit harsher, put off rage. That's the way I want you to read it. Now, again, when people begin to talk about the sunset, it's not just an issue of time. It is time, but it's not just an issue of time. Because, again, one of the uh, examples I saw in one of the commentaries was, well, it doesn't mean that we just go to a part of the world where the sun never sets, and so you're never in trouble. That's not what this means. 
What it's saying is there is a difference between disputes and anger. So are there disputes that you can still go to bed and then get up the next morning and deal with it? Yes. Because there are people who put this into practice and they go, well, we have to finish this discussion because we can't go to bed until the discussion's over. Some of you get nastier the later it gets. It does you no good to sit there and fight about something because it's two o'clock in the morning and you can't go to bed until you figure it out. However, if you are angry to the place of rage, that's what you can't go to bed with. Disputes, yes. Rage, no. And so what happens is we have to put on this righteous anger because if we're honest, what we usually do with each other is we allow minor disputes become major battles for us. We allow momentary disagreements to become into simmering resentment. And when that happens, we begin to find ourselves falling into rage. We want to retaliate. We want to get even. But the Apostle Paul comes and he says what we need to do is put on righteous anger. Now this quote that you have in here from the Apostle Paul comes from Psalm 4. In Psalm 4 and verse 5 I'm going to give to you. It says this. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Then offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. See, part of our understanding is, I mean, I get this from Kent Hughes, proper anger is a sign of spiritual life and health. There are things that we are supposed to be angry about. The death of unborn children. We're supposed to be angry when justice is not meted out correctly. There are things that we are to be righteously angry about, but not rageful. And why is that? He says, so that there's no foothold for the devil. Because what happens? If we allow rage to continue to move forward, then what happens is we desire the suffering of others. So here's a, here's a great example. So you can look at the Roberts family and you should say, well, if I've got a problems with the Roberts family, I sure hope Elizabeth has bad nights so that they're up all night long with a crying baby. If you've crossed that line, then it's rage. Listen to this quote. Of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun to lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savor to the last tooth and morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it's a feast for a king. But the chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. See, when we allow bitterness and resentment to take over, then we begin to hate. When we hate, 
then Satan has a foothold in our lives and he begins to affect everything. And so he says, put off rage, put on righteous anger so that the devil might not have a foothold. And then thirdly for us personally, he says, you need to have grace in work, put off stealing. Now again, this is one that most of us go, I don't do that. How much software have you taken illegally? How much music did you not pay for? What about videos that you've downloaded? The number one money thing in companies is not stealing. It's from company theft. How many of us have do personal things on company time? Now you might have gone through that list and go, I'm good. Well, let me ask you the question, who do you manipulate? Who do you steal from to enhance yourself? Who do you begin to manipulate the situation so that it comes out in your favor? See, he says, quit stealing, quit taking, and be a giver. Put on work. We become a taker to the giver, but why do we do it? Who's the master? Colossians 3, 23 through 24 says this. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, for you are serving the Lord Christ. Do we really look at our jobs and the opportunities that we have, even in volunteer stuff, as an opportunity to glorify and honor the Lord? But then the Bible takes it a step further in 1 Peter 2, 18. But he says, don't do this just for the righteous masters, but do it for the unjust well, now, pastor, you're stepping on my toes. We don't have the opportunity to say, I'm going to obey the good ones and disobey the bad ones because they deserve it. We work as unto the Lord. Now, why do we do it? It says so that we might share with those in need. Have you ever thought that the money is not yours and it's not just about you? And I do think it's true. I think the older we've, I've gotten, I'll just make it personal, the older I've gotten and the more money that I have, the more stingy I've become. Well, we need that for later. We need to have a, a, a good retirement we need to help pay for college, but not the whole thing. I mean, they got to learn some responsibility. Well, what about those weddings and the new cars we need to get? And just keep adding to the list. And God says, you work. You work to share with those who are in need. So there's a, a part that the Apostle Paul is telling us, he says, work on that personal holiness. You're a Christian. Live out your grace to one another.
But then he talks about our witness. And so he switches up in the verses and he begins to say, let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only that, that which is edifying. So again, we have to go through the, the process of what does it mean to put off corrupting talk? And the way that the word is written here in the Greek, it means rotten or putrid. And it's something that not only affects the hearer, but it corrupts the speaker as well. There's a, a stinking, toxic relationship that goes on. And we know those kind of people, right? The people who come and they only have negative to say. And when they only have negative to say, they never listen. So God's saying there are people who are so rotten and putrid that it begins to corrupt Well, it's easy again to look at other people. How many of us have become desensitized in regards to corrupting talk? This was a hard sermon. You guys get to hear it for maybe 25, 30 minutes. I got 20 plus hours this week. What are the videos we're looking at? How we justify things of like, I'm so into grace that I could say cuss words and not feel guilty. What about even the religious practices in Paul's day? They, they brought their, their corrupting talk even into church services. See, the Apostle Paul is saying, hey, if you have been changed, then what happens is the Holy Spirit begins to put on edifying words that which is of benefit. So again, every time that we we talk to somebody, we should be asking the question, is by what I'm about to say, edifying and building them up, is it going to be to their benefit? And if not, then be quiet. And I'm going to say something here, kids, and your parents are not going to be happy about it, but I need you to understand, shut up. We are too quick to talk and the apostle Paul says put on these edifying words and he says do this so that we don't mess up what we have with the Holy Spirit now why does he bring this in at this point because listen the Holy Spirit is not a force it's not Star Wars the Holy Spirit is a person and the person of the Holy Spirit is invested in our lives He goes with you wherever you go. He's around you whenever you speak. So when we start doing things that quench him, and he begins to mourn over our sin. But what happens for us is we become indifferent. And when we become indifferent to sin, then it becomes deadly to us. See, our failure to love as we should in the community of Jesus affects the Trinity. We are to love the way that Christ loves. We're supposed to speak with the leading of the Holy Spirit. And when we don't, when we do it in our own power, then it starts to be corrupting. We start to lie. We start to to, to bring falsehoods. We begin to, to slip in our work. We begin to steal from one another. And this isn't the church. 
And so the apostle Paul says when we go, when we begin to edify, when we begin to walk in the spirit, then what happens is we give, sorry, went ahead too far. We give grace to one another. We give grace to one another. It means we're supposed to be slow um, to to go and, and abuse one another, but we're also supposed to be quick to repent. Listen to Psalm 32, verse 5. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. How are we speaking the gospel to one another? How are we edifying with our words? And again, we live in extremes. So some people hear this and you are now already beating yourself up. I'm a horrible person. God can't love me. Quit listening to the lies of Satan. But there's other people in here that have heard this and go, this doesn't apply to me. Don't cheapen grace. It all applies to us. And the last thing the Apostle Paul does is he brings us to the greatest situation and he tells us to forgive as we have been forgiven. See, we are to find grace in forgiveness. We're supposed to put off bitterness, rage, malice, clamor. It's a process. And when that process happens, it means that our heart's not right with God because what we're doing is we're seeking destruction and defilement. We want to hurt other people at this point. And it shouldn't be what he says is he says to put on forgiveness. We are to be imitators of God, which means it's a heart issue. And what are the words that he says will be about kindness and tenderhearted, giving compassion. Now I want to take just a moment to talk about the difference between pardon and forgiveness. God's telling us to forgive. It doesn't mean we always have to be at a place where we pardon in that moment. There are consequences to some sins. And God allows us to go through that process. But it should never affect our forgiveness to one another. And our forgiveness comes because we forgive as we have been forgiven. And so we have to come and confess our sins to God. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's faithful. Jesus forgives even, listen to this, even our lack of unforgiveness. You think about that? He had to die for that. And he then tells us to apply it. Who, ask this question, who are you unwilling to forgive? And why? We should be eager to forgive others because we've been forgiven. I'm going to end with a true story. It's a story that I had not heard of. It's about a family called the Stains. And the Stains uh, were in India True story, on January 23rd, 1999, Gladys' husband, Graham, and her two sons, Timothy and Philip, ages 8 and 10, were asleep in their car in a remote village. At that point, militant Hindus doused the car with gasoline and set it on fire. 
The militants prevented the stains from getting out of the car and kept rescuers at bay. It says the horrific incident brought world attention. But more than that did Gladys's response to the murder of her husband and two young sons. She wrote the following. When I learned that my family was dead, I told my daughter, we'll forgive them, won't we? And the daughter said, yes, mommy, we will. She explained, forgiveness brings healing. It allows the other person a chance to start life afresh. If I have something against you and I forgive you, the bitterness leaves me. Forgiveness liberates both the forgiver and the forgiven. She says, how was I able to forgive? She said, the truth is is that I myself am a sinner. I needed Jesus Christ to forgive me. And because I have Jesus in my life, it's possible for me to forgive others. Her forgiveness began to go throughout India. And she said some of the things that came out that were good was there was reform on the persecution of other Christians. They began to understand the militancy of certain Hindu groups. And the lepers that they did ministry with had now come to the forefront to be ministered to. But she said the witness for the gospel did not go unchallenged. There are pretty much a lot of people who still continue to hate and give death threats. Why then did she endure and show kindness and compassion? She said the answer is that kindness and compassion against the backdrop of bitterness and rage are an even greater witness to Christ. It began to spread so much that one of the missionaries talks about a day where he gave out a tract to a man and the man responded and said, is this the Jesus of Gladys Staines? And the man said, yes. And he goes, well, then I want to know that Jesus. It goes further and tells of the daughter who grew up. And she's been asked by many of her friends, I can't understand how you could forgive them. And the daughter responded, I can't understand how they can't understand why we've forgiven them. Forgiveness had so etched the mind of Christ on this little girl that she could not even perceive why others could not understand the need and the beauty of forgiveness. Do we understand grace? Not the concept Do you understand that you as an individual deserve hell? And you are nastier of a person than you can ever dream or imagine. But Jesus Christ is a far greater and loving Savior than you could ever dream of. It's to him and him alone that we run. So who gets the glory from your life? Do you grasp and understand just how much God loves you? And do you understand what it means to receive forgiveness? And as you grasp it, then give it away. If you are here and you are bitter, give it to Jesus. Give it all to him and then praise him.
Praise him for his love and his mercy and grace. Fresh and new every day. Every day. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, easy words to say, maybe even easy words to hear, hard words to put into practice. Or we like spinning stories to make ourselves look better than we really are. Or we like people to recognize our giftedness. Father, we, we rage against those and keep back forgiveness where it doesn't need to be. Or we steal from you and we steal from other people. We crush other people with our words and our actions. So, Father, please let us put on Christ. Let us live for him, be led by the power of the Holy Spirit. But, Lord, may we end as you ended this passage. May we forgive as we have been forgiven. Then, then this world will see that there is something different and they will run to you, the only wise and perfect and living Savior, and to worship you as we do today. Change us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. This I pray in his name and all God's people said.